I think you guys are working through Philippians at the moment, and uh, I've been asked to have a look at Philippians chapter 2, which we will do as the Lord uh, permits. Um, and for, uh, Philippians chapter 2 is one of those incredibly deep and complex passages, it's quite a famous passage in, in the scriptures, and so um, I'm not going to get through the whole of Philippians chapter 2 this morning, I'm, I'm going to actually just bite off, which is quite a sizable chunk as it is the first 11 verses. hope that doesn't mess with your preaching plans, Ross. Uh, someone will have to, to, to wrap the, the second half of the chapter up next week. Um, but as you're going to see, there's so much in this that uh, it's worth not rushing through. Yeah. Um, Paul, as you are probably aware from last week's preach, uh, Paul was, uh, he was writing from Rome, uh, more than likely Rome. Uh, he was in prison and he was under the threat of of execution, he didn't know if he was going to live or not. It turned, as it turns out, he did, and he, and he was released. But he didn't know that at the time, and he was writing a few of, uh, of, of the epistles in the New Testament, which we know as the prison epistles, and Philippians is one of them. Um, and he was writing to a church that he had himself planted. And if you want to go and read that story, as I'm sure Ross told you last week, you go and read Acts chapter 16. That's the account of the planting of this, this church initially. Um, Paul is in high spirits, although he's in prison, and he is just thanking God for the prosperity of the gospel. He says it's, it's been, you know, actually it's turned out for good, for the good of the gospel that I'm in prison here. The whole palace God has heard the gospel. Uh, and he, he in fact says that marvelous thing, you know, whether I live or die, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, the only thing that I care about is whether I... It glorify Christ, you know, if, I'm, if it's going to bring him more glory for me to live, then I'm going to live on. If it brings him more glory for me to die, then to die is gain. Because if I die, I know where I'm going. Um, it's a remarkable worldview when you compare it to that of anybody else other than a Christian. Um, Philippi, as again you probably know, was a... Um, a, a, a town or city in modern day Europe. So this was the kind of first European mission. And it was a Roman colony, which I will uh, make mention of a little bit later. Um, being a Roman colony, it would have had a strong presence of the emperor cult there. At the time was Nero. And so Paul is writing to this little church that he planted himself and they're in the midst of a sort of pagan environment. And the occasion of his writing is someone from that church, a guy called, uh, called Epaphroditus, had been sent from the church in Philippi to Rome where Paul was in prison and he was sent to help Paul. He was going to be a servant to Paul. They were, he was a kind of a gift from the, from the church. But uh, when Epaphroditus reached Rome, he brought news of the church and how things were going in Philippi. Uh, but he himself had fallen ill. Perhaps on his journey. And he almost died, Paul says. And Paul was exceedingly concerned not only for Epaphroditus, but for the, the church back in Philippi that had heard that their servant was sick almost unto death. And so when Epaphroditus recovered from his illness, Paul said, I tell you what, I know that you were sent here and you meant to help me, but ever the, the unselfish, selfless missionary says, I want you to go back to the church so that they can be comforted when they see you. He sends Epaphroditus back, and 
Epaphroditus goes with a letter in his hands. And that's the letter that we have. And Paul takes the opportunity in that letter to thank them for the gift. Epaphroditus had brought uh, some kind of financial gift with him in order to provide for Paul's needs while he was in prison. And uh, Paul thanked them for this gift. And uh, he also gives thanks with with joy for the state of the church because the news was good from Epaphroditus. Things were, were, were going well in the church. And then he also takes an opportunity to address one or two of the concerns that Epaphroditus did share with him. There were one or two problems in the church, nothing major. And uh, perhaps the greatest concern that Epaphroditus brought to Paul in his news of the church was that there was the, the, the sort of seeds of disunity within the church. And that's highly credible in the light of, of two facts about this church. The, the first thing that we remember was how diverse the membership of this church was. And perhaps Ross mentioned this last week as you read through the, the, uh, the conversion accounts of the few people we know who did give their lives to Christ in Philippi when Paul was first there. You've got three of the most incredibly different people. First, you've got a wealthy businesswoman who had a, had a, a cloth business. Uh, she owned a home within this wealthy city of Philippi. She was a very well-to-do lady. And uh, she got saved and her whole household got saved. So her sort of, you know, maybe some teenage kids, maybe brothers or sisters, maybe a husband, we don't know. Uh, her family gets saved. Now they're in this church. You know, this is the Constantia family. <laughs> then we have a former slave girl who was part of a human trafficking ring who was demon-possessed to the point that she could, you know, almost tell the future. She could say things about people that no one could have known through this demonic presence. And her owners, her slave owners, made a tremendous amount of money from this divining, fortune-telling, demon-possessed slave girl. Uh, Paul had cast a demon out of this girl, and now she's part of this church, seated next to Constantia fam. And the Constantia kids. <clears throat> you can see how this begins to cause some problems. Not only that, but we've got a, a, a Roman jailer. Who used to torture people for a living. And <laughs> not only, you know, torturing Roman jailer man, but his whole family. Can you imagine how dysfunctional his kids must have been? And they were side by side in the treasure house ministry of Philippi with Constantia fam. And, you know, so you look at this, this, the membership of this church and you just think, well, I mean, there's going to be unity problems. The second factor which we must remember is uh, Philippi as a city itself was a wealthy city. It was a Roman colony, which meant that throughout this diverse Roman empire, certain cities were counted as Roman colonies, and every member of the city, official member of the city, was counted as a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship was an incredibly rare thing in the days of Paul. If you were a Roman citizen, you had rights which no one else throughout this empire had. Very few people had Roman citizenship, which is one of the strange things about the Apostle Paul. He was a Roman citizen. We don't know how he got his citizenship. If you did not live in Rome as a Roman and you had Roman citizenship, it normally meant that one of your 
predecessors, your father, your grandfather, they had done something tremendously important for the Roman Empire. It's like being knighted in the British Empire. So we have a Roman colony where many of the people were these elite Roman citizens, wealthy. And one thing which I can tell you about wealthy people is that they like getting their own way. And wealthy people normally do. It's just the world we live in. Uh, Wealthy people get used to the fact that they can get their own way. In fact, they start thinking that they deserve it. It is very difficult to avoid pride when you have money. Now, I'm not saying that poverty glorifies God or that being poor leads to being a loving, humble person. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, yes, it is. Because rich people are used to calling the shots, being able to call the shots. They're used to being able to control their environment. They're used to being able to separate themselves from a certain type of person that they don't want near them. When you have money, you can do that. You can control your environment. And rich people don't spend time with those they don't like. They spend time with people in their own circle. And so a rich church, which is what this would have been, is always going to struggle with unity. So we see both of these factors in the church in Philippi. And in fact, what those two factors do, the wealth of the church and then the diversity of the kind of people who are within it, both of those factors actually fed something in the hearts of the people in the church in Philippi that lurks in the sinful heart of every human being. And that is selfishness. And as we're going to see, overcoming selfishness is one of the main themes of the letter to the Philippians. Because this was a church who was starting to crack along the lines of disunity. There were these fractures appearing. And Paul writes against the thing that brings the fractures, which is selfishness in the human heart. And uh, that is especially true of chapter 2, which we're going to see as we camp out there this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, well, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but Paul, the same author as this letter to the Philippians, he wrote to another church in Corinth, and uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, he, he, he writes there about how the children of Israel, back in the days of Moses... They could not and would not look on the shining face of Moses when he came out of that tabernacle having spent time with God and his face shone. They would not look upon that shining face of Moses because their hearts were hard, Paul says. They did not want to believe that the God who was giving them all these laws that they didn't want to keep was in fact such a glorious being that if you spend time with him, your face will shine like the sun. They did not want to think of God that way. They did not, did not want to ponder upon his glory. Their hearts were hard. And so Moses put a veil over his face, the Bible says, and uh, he obscured that glory of God that was shining from him. 
And then Paul makes a strange comment in 2 Corinthians. He says that that is like people not wanting to look upon the face of Jesus Christ. People don't want to look upon Christ as he is displayed in the gospel. Because their hearts are hard. But Paul says that as the Holy Spirit opens someone's eyes and their heart. That, that uh, what James is reading there. When, when he takes out that heart of stone. And he puts in a heart of flesh. That miracle of regeneration. Of being born again. When someone is born again. Their eyes are opened to the truth of the gospel. And then they look upon the Lord. That veil is taken away. In the act of faith, the Bible says. And then Paul makes this this most curious statement. He says that as we gaze upon Christ in the gospel, just like the children of Israel could have gazed upon the, the shining face of Moses, when we gaze upon the face of Christ, in Him we see, as if reflected in a mirror, the glory of God Himself. In the face of Christ we see the glory of God. And then he says, as we gaze upon that glory, in the face of Christ, reflecting the glory of God as in a mirror, we ourselves are transformed from glory to glory, from one level of glory to the next. More and more glorious. We ourselves are transformed into His image. It's the strangest Phenomenon. It's the weirdest picture that he he paints for us. It's, It's like someone looking into a mirror, but not seeing their own reflection, seeing the reflection of someone else. Seeing Christ, but as you stare into this mirror, your face is slowly conformed to his beautiful face. That's the message of of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you gaze upon Christ and you dwell upon the glory of God reflected in Him, you are changed to become more and more like Him. Now that is the great theme of Philippians chapter 2. Paul uh, is addressing selfishness, as we're going to read in the first four verses together now. He's, He's addressing the selfishness that lurks in the heart of every person that brings disunity to the church. And he appeals to the Philippians in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, which there is, he's he's assuming the truth of these statements, and he's basically saying, if you will grant, which if you're a Christian, you will, that there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, Comfort in Christ's love and the the knowledge of God's love for you. If there's any comfort in that for you. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Both the Spirit Himself being with us. And and the, the witnessing with our hearts that we have become the children of God. Which is what the Spirit of God does to a believer. He confirms in your very heart that you have been forgiven. That you are acceptable in God's sight. But not only that fellowship, but but a fellowship that that is breathed between brothers and sisters in the church. That there is a love that we have for one another. It's not perfect. It's fractured because of the selfishness that still dwells in us. But there is a love between us that you don't have in the world. There is. 
Tell me you don't feel that. There is a love between believers. Everywhere you go in the world because we have the same spirit. So he says if there's any comfort in this, in this love, any affection, any mercy. He says if, if these things are so then please fulfill my joy by being like minded. Having the same love. Constantia family. Demon possessed girl. Ex-Roman torturing jailer. I want you to be like-minded toward one another. I want you to be of one accord, have the same love. I want you to be of one mind. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for us to have the same love, to be like-minded? Does it mean we all have to think the same and be the same and be kind of like a communistic, monogenous person all the same? No. He, he elaborates in verse 3. He says, let nothing be done... From ambition, uh, sorry, through selfishness, selfish ambition, or conceit, arrogance. Don't let anything be done from these things, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what it means to be like-minded. To have the same love, it is to consider other people better than yourself and to look out not only for yourself, but for the interests of others. It's about being unselfish. That's, that is the heart of unity, is unselfishness. God deeply desires that humanity be a community of love. That is the deep desire of God for humanity. He wants us to be a community that loves one another. God is less interested in the individual than he is in the community. Well, that doesn't mean that God hasn't created individuals. He has. It doesn't mean he doesn't know individuals. He does. He created you with all of your specific gifts and he knows you. He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. And he loves you as an individual, as his son or as his daughter. He loves you. But... The reason God has created you as, as an individual, the purpose of individuality, as God created it, I mean, individuality is God's idea, the purpose of it is to demonstrate the manifold, that means multifaceted, different typedness, multifaceted, manifold wisdom of God, when all of these disparate, separated, different, diverse, Individual people come together in unselfish love of one another and live together in community with one another. That demonstrates the multifaceted beauty and complexity of God. Because God is a trinity. So all of this comes from the trinity. If you've studied any philosophy, a big question take you a while to wrap your head around, is why do we live in a universe that has both singularity and multiplicity? And now that's a question the philosophers through the ages have wrestled with. Why is there diversity in the universe, but why does it all make up a whole? How do we explain diversity and unity? 
being in the same universe? Huge philosophical question. But the Christian worldview and the Bible explains it because God himself, the, the, the source of all reality, is both a singularity. He is God. There is one God. And yet, he is diverse. There are three persons in one God. He is both singular and plural. So that's, that explains the philosophical conundrum. It's explained in the Trinity. The very nature of God, and so the very nature of all reality, is communal. Love can exist only when there is diversity, and then diversity coming together in unity. That's why love can only exist between persons. Between persons. And God is three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who always were. Who, who lived in a perfect dance of love, as Keller puts it, from all eternity. They lived in communion with one another. That's why God is love. And we are made in His image. We are made to desire Love and fellowship and, and unity without losing our individuality. But because man has fallen in sin, though we are made in the image of God and we are meant to exist in this profound unity of love with fellow people, with fellow creatures, because we have fallen in sin, the profound impact of the fall is that we have become self-centered, selfish. And selfishness fractures community. This is what's happening in Philippi. And so the human heart turns away from community. And so the question which then rises in the heart as we read these four verses... Is, is how am I to live in this way? How is it that I, as a selfish man, can do this? That's the golden question. That's the, the question that troubles all humanity. How can we do this? How is it that I, a selfish man, a man prone to believe in his own self-importance, me, Steve Johnston, how can I, as, a, as an arrogant, selfish man who is prone and tempted to think he's better than you, Prone to think that I'm more important than you. Prone to think that I'm more gifted than you. Prone to think that I have more value than you. That's me. It's my heart. If you want to know what's in my heart, that's what's in my heart. Selfishness and conceit. How is it that a man such as I, whose default setting is his own self-interest, how can I fulfill the joy of Christ by being like-minded together with you? By not letting my mind wander when I'm speaking to you, thinking about what you're thinking of me and what other people are thinking about me, but genuinely take interest in you, in your life, in your heart, in your fears, in your dreams. How can I rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? How can I take the selfishness that is in me that drives my whole life and have it removed so that I can live in community again. In short, how can I fulfill the second great commandment, which is to love my neighbor as myself? 
Because my sinful heart doesn't want to do that. And can I break some news to you? Nor does yours. Nor does yours. How can we do this? Because God's answer to that question, how can we do this? How can we overcome the selfish bent in our hearts? It is unlike anything that you will find in the world. Go and do a little Google search on how to be more mature. And there you will have displayed all the world's answers to that question. Here's a sampling. Read more books. Go to more seminars. Be positive. Work hard. Exercise more. Don't be a slob. Don't be angry. Control yourself. Believe in yourself. Look for lessons in everyday life. Think about other people. Do something kind. Serve others. Take control of your desires. Let the inner man control the outer man. Learn to love yourself. Be more tolerant. Be empathetic. Don't be arrogant. One website said this. It's not that hard to learn how to be more mature. You just need to put a little effort into it and stay motivated. And you'll see how much better you'll feel about yourself in no time. In the words of Job, worthless physicians. All of them. You see, the world does not have the answer to this question. They cannot answer it. How is it that we can overcome the dramatically devastating effect that sin has had on us? And this is where the majestic words of Philippians chapter 2 ring through eternity as an invitation to be transformed into the image of a holy and humble God. Paul sets before us the only solution to our sin problem. And the only solution to our immaturity problem as Christians. Whether you are still a sinner in your sins. Or whether you are an immature Christian. And which of us isn't. The solution is the same. And we pick that up in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul does here. When all the worthless psychological techniques of men do not work to change us. He, he presents Christ as the answer. He's being entirely consistent with what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He displays Christ before the Philippians. As Christ shines forth, reflects the glory of God in the gospel. And he says, gaze upon Christ. Look upon him. And you will be transformed. Because he knows that it is in beholding the Son of God. Seeing Him displayed in all His magnificence. In all His love. In all His humility. It's in meditating on Him and His greatness. That we are transformed into His image. So do you feel your need to change this morning? 
I tell you, I feel it. The more I grow as a Christian, the more I feel my need to change. The more I see the selfishness that lurks in the heart of Steve Johnston. I want to change. I want to be more like Jesus. You know what makes me want to be more like him? When I read what he did for me. And this is what does it. This is what breaks the sinful human heart. The love of God in the gospel. And so Paul does this. He now displays Christ. He says, I want you to think about Jesus. Look upon Jesus. Meditate upon him. Read about Jesus in this letter. Pray to Jesus and to God in Jesus' name. Thank God for Jesus. Sing about Jesus. Worship Jesus. Speak and converse with one another about Jesus. Write about Jesus. Write letters and emails and poems and songs about Jesus. Listen to preaching about Jesus. Remember Jesus in the sacraments. And as you do these things, you will change. Now why does this work? When all of the worthless physicians of the world, all of those techniques don't work, why does this work? And Paul gives the answer to that question in that same passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm just going to read you verse 18. He says this, As we behold the glory of God reflected in the face of Jesus Christ, as we look into Him, we do all these things. He says this, We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And here's the answer, Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's why it works. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to change human beings. To mature us. It is the Holy Spirit's work. And only He can do that work. And we don't have to understand the mysterious workings in our hearts as we look upon Jesus. As we read about Him, as we listen to preaching, as we partake in the sacraments, as we dwell upon His beauty and His glory, as we keep our eyes fixed upon Him, the author and finisher of our faith. You don't have to know how it works. You don't have to know how an antibiotic works. When you have tonsillitis, you just have to swallow it. And it works. That's why you have to have the faith of a child. That's why the writer to, to the Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares, and let us run with endurance the, rate, the race that is set before us. How? How do I do that, writer to the Hebrews? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It's looking unto Him that changes us. And so we would be foolish if we didn't take a moment this morning to now look to Him. To do what Paul wants us to do. To do what the writer of the Hebrews wants us to do. And, and now he, he displays Jesus before us now. And let's gaze upon Him. And Holy Spirit, 
come and do your work as we, as we gaze upon Christ. Verses 6 to 8. He says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That word form, he, he, though he was in the form of God, is the Greek word morphe, where we get morph from, the English word. That word means the essential qualities that make a thing the thing that it is. Why is this a phone? It has certain qualities that make it a phone. This is what B.B. Warfield says. He says, this form of God, which is what Jesus was, he was in the form of God, is the sum of the characteristics which make the being that we call God, specifically God, rather than some other being, an angel, say, or a man. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore, he is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is. To possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God, God. He was God. And he didn't consider it robbery. That, that Greek word Harpagmos means a thing to be seized, a thing to be grasped, like a spoil of war that you would steal and then hold on to and not let anybody steal from you. And Paul says that wasn't the case with Jesus. He wasn't, he didn't try to grab onto deity as Adam did in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. No. Adam tried to seize it. Jesus didn't. He was God. And it was not something that he held onto like a spoil of war that no one was going to rob from him. He willingly laid it down. Not his deity. He was always God even while he was on the earth as a man. But he laid down that external glory with he, that he had from eternity past. He was willing to lay down the external insignia. The, the, the branding. The external visible aspect of his deity. And yet he was God on the earth. Just think about that. He was God on the earth. Walking around in a human body. Having been born of a virgin. In the most humble circumstances. What a humble God. He, he was the glorious being that spoke the entire universe into being. And yet he was born in a filthy stable. Came and he lived amongst us as a humble servant. And there were a couple of moments in his life where that, 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 that external glory just beeped through. The Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up a mountain with his, his three closest friends, Peter, James and John. And there he is transfigured before them and he shone like the sun. His clothes were whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. That's, I mean, all the, the gospel writer could say is they were whiter than anything you've ever seen in your life. And he shone like the sun and they hid their faces. 
just a glimpse of who he really was. There's another verse that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and is about to get arrested, the whole company of people with clubs and swords gather around him as they're approaching them. It's almost like he just, he just gives them a little pulse of his glory. And the Bible says the whole crowd of him fell to the ground. Just one little peep at his glory. And then he hid it again. And they arrested him. He gave his life away. He was immensely powerful. Infinitely able to protect himself. He gave his life away. Think of the sufferings of Jesus. Not only on the cross, but during his his whole life. The whole life of Jesus was a life of suffering and humility. He lived, as it were, under the shadow of the cross. He knew what he had come to do. He knew the Old Testament prophecies. That he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That described his whole life. The prophecy of Simeon. On on the eighth day when he was taken to the temple to be circumcised, a man had a prophecy. Said to him, Behold, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. And the thoughts of many will be revealed. And throughout Jesus' life, he was making statements like this. He was saying, My hour has not yet come. He knew it was coming. His whole life, he was being bred for the slaughter. And then you think of his sufferings on the cross. He suffered as a guilty man before a judge's seat. Found guilty, hanged between two thieves that he might die in the place of guilty sinners. He didn't die in an accident. He didn't die from a disease or some natural cause. He, He wasn't killed by an angry lawless mob. No, he died as a legally condemned sinner. Being numbered with transgressors. Why? When he was innocent. And how great was Christ's agony on the cross. And the hell that he endured for six hours. The sin bearing servant of God. They say that crucifixion is the most painful form of death ever invented. Invented by the, by the Persians about 300 B.C. The Romans took it up at about 100 B.C. And by the time Jesus died, 130 years later, they knew exactly what they were doing. The Roman philosopher Cicero said, Let the cross never touch either the bodies or the lips or the thoughts of Romans. And Romans were never crucified. So when a man was crucified, his wrists and his elbows and his shoulders would dislocate within the first 20 minutes. And his arms would stretch nine inches longer than they were. And he would hang there in tremendous pain with stress on the diaphragm, being unable to breathe. Not only that, he was whipped to within an inch of his life. He was stripped naked And he was nailed to the cross. His legs would have been bent, buckled at a 45 degree angle. And to breathe, because of the weight on the diaphragm, he would have had to have lifted himself up to get every breath in. And then recollapsed back on the weight of the nails. And so 
every breath that my saviour breathed for six hours he had to lift himself up on dislocated limbs and on steel nails and death came slowly to him as the oxygen level in his blood slowly dropped from the bleeding and the lack of breathing and every stabbing pain that he endured was punishment for my selfishness He was dying as a criminal and a rebel because that's what I am. And he was dying for me. He was being offered up as a sacrifice, bearing the wrath of God against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of sinners. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a God we serve that he would do that. That it pleased God to bruise his own son. To put him to grief when he made his soul an offering for sin. How serious is sin? How serious is the selfishness that I live my whole life trying to battle? How serious is it? Well, as one man once said, your sin can be in one of only two places. Either on your own head or on the head of Jesus on the cross. And I don't think we'll ever know the complexity and the monstrosity of the torture that he went through on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of dereliction was so powerful that it absorbed all the wrath of God against sinners and it paid for an eternity of hells for everyone who will repent and put their trust in him he was forsaken by his friends as he died on that cross he was buried in a borrowed tomb when Paul says he humbled himself He's not exaggerating. He humbled himself. But God raised him from the dead. And he has, verse 9, God has now exalted him because of what he did, the obedience with which he lived. God has now exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Where does Paul get that from? What name is he speaking about? The name that Jesus has been given. It's above every other name. He gets that from Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to read that to you as we close. This is God's words speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Judah. He says, look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There is no other God beside me. I am the one and only true God. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness and it shall not return. What I've said is going to happen. That to me, every knee shall bow. 
and every tongue will take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, in Yahweh, that's the word being used in Hebrew there, in Yahweh all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Surely in Yahweh I have righteousness. And now Paul quotes those very words. And he says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue, even as people are are being cast into hell, their mouths will confess Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant keeping faithful God of the Old Testament. He is the one and only true God. He is Yahweh. And that's our confession here this morning. That Jesus is Yahweh. And in Him we have righteousness. Father, we thank You so much for the gift of Your Son. Lord, we're ashamed of our own selfishness and conceit. Lord, we, we, we feel the burden and hear the call to live In community, Lord. Lord, even in this local church, that there would be a genuine love for one another. A genuine unselfishness toward one another. Lord, would you do that here? Would you do that here? Would you give these Church on Main Woodstock members, Lord, love for one another? Lord, we, we want to be like this. Help us. We look to Jesus for our salvation. We look to Jesus for our sanctification. We just look to Him and we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit to make us more like Him. We ask You for that work, God. And we ask it in His name, in the name of Jesus. That name which we already confess now is above every other name. Jesus, You are Lord. You are Yahweh. And we worship you this morning.